Welcome to Drilling Deep. I am your host, John Kingston. And in a few minutes, we're going to be switching to an interview I did from the floor of the Transportation Research Board annual meeting, which was held in Washington earlier this week. It's usually an enormous gathering with attendance of around 13,000 to 14,000. It was a little more than a third of that this week. Not surprising, but unfortunate. But even at that, with about 5,000 people, it is still quite a gathering of people. When I was there, I heard a presentation from Bob Rohde of the Mileage-Based User Fee Alliance dedicated to the proposition that funding our roads works better with a mileage-based fee than a gasoline tax. That levy hasn't been increased in about 30 years, leaving the Highway Trust Fund running on fumes. She's going to be with us in a few minutes to talk about her perspective of how a user-based fee works. But we're going to turn to oil first, as we do here on Drilling Deep, and that's how we got our name. But in talking about oil, we want to talk first about natural gas, because right now it is a significant factor in the price of diesel. We've mentioned it before, but it needs to be reiterated here today because it's growing in its importance. Oil prices are global. No region can get too far ahead of other regions because you just move oil from the cheap area to the expensive area on a tanker, and it all tends to balance out. That isn't the case with natural gas, which moves best on a pipeline. If you want to move it, you need to liquefy it. You super chill it, and then you put it on a special tankers, and the U.S. does do a lot of that to export its surplus of natural gas. The price of LNG in Asia in the past few months got over $30 per million BTUs, while the U.S. price, after being high most of the year, got down under $4 per 1,000 cubic feet. Those two measurements are pretty much the same. But what is concerning now is that the international price of LNG and the price of pipeline gas in Europe are both going crazy again. I won't pound you with a lot of numbers, but let's just say that in both those areas, the price of natural gas is a lot more than in the U.S., and that's incentivizing taking U.S. gas, liquefying it, and sending it abroad, and that's helping to drive up the price of U.S. natural gas. Last week, in just about five trading days, the price of natural gas delivered at the key hub in Louisiana rose almost $1 per thousand cubic feet. That's an increase of more than 25% in just five trading days. It came back down a bit after that, but here's the worry from the diesel side of things. There are increasing reports that producers of electricity are turning to oil to generate electricity and substituting the oil for natural gas. Natural gas is a far more efficient fuel to make electricity generally, but if the price difference between the two is great enough, and oil is cheaper relative to natural gas by a lot when measured on a BTU basis, then oil will be used to make electricity. Natural gas impacts oil also as a heating fuel, so you've got the same dynamic going on there. That obviously is not good news for users of diesel fuel because the type of oil they use to produce electricity is usually a distillate like diesel or kerosene. They don't use gasoline. They will use a heavier grade called fuel oil. Using gasoline is even less efficient than using oil in general. One notable statistic, though, is that diesel in the past week has not risen faster than crude. The spread between diesel on the CME Commodity Exchange and Brent crude, which is the world crude benchmark, that spread has stayed pretty steady. That suggests that if natural gas is dragging up oil, it's doing it for crude as much as it is for diesel. It's still early in the winter. How cold is it going to be the rest of the month and through February? Diesel and heating oil are similar, so there's always a link between cold weather and diesel prices. But natural gas has been so quiet for so many years that it really hasn't been a factor in the diesel market for quite some time. But it is going to be a factor for the foreseeable future, and it doesn't necessarily end with the onset of spring. If natural gas stays real high, 
and oil continues to be an attractive choice for generating electricity, even as the cold weather retreats, that's going to matter too. As I said, in, as I said earlier, the interview this week is coming to you live, or at least recorded live here at the annual meeting in Washington of the Transportation Research Board. This is a gigantic meeting in most years with, I've heard about 14,000 people in attendance this year. The word is it's down to about 5,000 people, though that is not confirmed. But even with that big drop off in attendance, there's still a lot going on here. And I specifically wanted to bring to Drilling Deep, uh, Barb Rohde. She is uh, she was on one of the panels today. She led a panel on user-based mileage fees, and I heard her, and I thought, I've got to have her on. So she agreed to, to sit down with me. So, Barb, why don't you talk a little bit about what you do as the, uh, as the, the head of your organization, your alliance? <laughs> well, thanks very much, John, and thanks for inviting me. Um, uh, the mileage-based user fee is a 501c3 that was started here in Washington in 2010, and we have about 50 members, and they range everything from uh, a lot of MPOs and state DOTs to consulting firms to uh, engineering firms, etc., that are all looking at trying to be able to see where we're going on this issue in the United States. And in the last uh, in the last 11 years, the federal government has now awarded. Uh, a little over $200 million with this last bill uh, to really test this in this country. And so we're really trying to help work with uh, our members and with other individuals to try to help shape that uh, as we begin this next five-year program uh, under the new um, uh, Biden infrastructure plan. Is it safe to say that the members of your alliance are all basically pro-mileage-based user fees, or do they just feel that it might be coming and they want to have a seat at the table? Well, I, I think a lot of them, most of them are, are pro, uh, but we have, uh, for example, Penske Truck Rental, who is a member, and uh, they really said that they just want to be able to be in the conversation because they have a lot that's, um, you know, that will will happen because of this. Uh, and, and I'm trying to think, we probably have a few other members like that also that really just want to be part of the conversation. And we say that's really important because uh, this is an issue that takes a lot of different viewpoints, a lot of different thoughts, uh, because it's just so new and so unique. The United States is in a very unique position as uh, the only nation in the world right now getting ready to do a national pilot of light vehicles. All right, let's go back first. We may have jumped in too fast. Maybe I'm still coming off your, your presentation, so I'm all, <laughs> all gunned up here on um, mileage-based user fees. Let's talk about what it is. There may be listeners out there who aren't totally sure how it works. Can you give a, a synopsis of, of what, a, what a fee is? Absolutely. And, and there is nothing set in stone at this point. Uh, we have a lot of pilots going on around the country, and what we're trying to see is, A, how the technology works, B, how uh, the funding stream will be uh, if it comes off. Uh, three, how the interoperability will work between states uh, if you drive between, you know, Virginia and Maryland or something like that, how that will work. And then I, I think four, kind of the privacy issue and kind of user acceptance. And, and there's the, each pilot has had kind of a unique, um, you know, look at this, and some have set various rates. Uh, there's been no uh, charging to this point. 
Uh, for example, Hawaii is one of the pilots and they're doing a very different system. Uh, they have an annual inspection fee in uh, inspection in Hawaii and they're doing odometer readings, but a very sophisticated odometer reading. It's not like, you know, where you just put your head in the driver's side and look at what it is. Uh, it's, it's very much based on a lot of figures. And, um, and I think that with all of the different pilots going on around the country, as we merge all of this together, that is where we hope we might be able to come down uh, with a national um, program or at least recommendations to, um, uh, to states on what they might be able to use or to do. Now, let's point out, so these pilots are being done, are they all on state levels? Yes, the S, uh, the surface transportation um, uh, bill from the, the uh, FAST Act from 2015 required it all be a state-led uh, pilot, and they required a 50% match. So that was pretty hefty uh, for a lot of states that were interested in this. Uh, but under this new program, uh, as I mentioned this morning, they've changed that. They've really blown that open, and it's going to be open to any local government, any uh, metropolitan planning organization, tribal governments, county governments. They no longer have to go to the state to apply for this. And there is a lot of interest in the country um, uh, from MPOs especially, but we've also heard from some local governments that are very interested in testing this theory. So, um, you know, I expect when when USDOT gets a new round up and going, we're going to have um, at least several MPOs as grant recipients. All right. Now, the, the whole idea here behind user-based mileage fees is that on the, on the federal level, uh, the, the, the gasoline trust fund is is utterly unreliable. The, the, the size of the tax hasn't been raised in 30 years. Um, that's number one. Number two, you also have the fact that cars are more efficient. Even you know the gasoline power cars are more efficient, so they're they're consuming less gasoline, even as they may be tearing up the road by the same level, number one. And number two, as you grow a fleet of cars that do not use gasoline, they will not be contributing to the roads through the gasoline tax, and yet they still will certainly be putting wear and tear on the roads. Given that, do you a, a state would it, would a state that adopts this would they dump their particular excise tax and substitute this? And the idea, I guess, on a federal level would be you would dump the federal gasoline tax and substitute a mileage based user fee. Um, I, you know, that's what we expect, but um, I say stay tuned because uh, right now there is such a comfort level with people of having the gas tax uh, be there. But what we are hoping is that it will be a replacement to the gas tax. And you are absolutely correct. You know, as some of the slides I was showing this morning, uh, how fast this is coming in the United States. And someone today uh, just sent me an article from the New York Times saying that only 8% of the cars in Norway now being sold, if I remember this, I re read it very quickly, are gas. They're moving to electric so fast. <laughs> and, and you know, you just look around and you hear about uh, your neighbors and friends. Um, you know, five years ago, you didn't hear that many uh, people saying, I'm thinking about electric. Well, you know what? I'm hearing it almost from every other person that's thinking about buying a car right now. So that's the impact of the United States and, the, and to the states. And I think that what we are believing is that this will be a replacement to the gas tax to make it more fair. It's also a lot more easier to adjust and make uh, 
you know, fair to people because of the technology uh, rather than just being at the pump. But, uh, but all of that will need to be addressed in the next five years with this new round of pilots and the national pilot. So give us a, an idea of the national pilot. I, I, you know, first of all, let's point out that while there's a pilot program, and it's not going to take in everybody, there'll be a designated subsector of drivers and vehicles. Some of them will be trucks. Some will be light vehicles that will be participating in the pilot, and the rest of the people on the road won't even know what's going on. Right? Yeah, so uh, because true. as you can imagine, our trucking audience here at Freight Waves you know, is very concerned about this. So I know it's early. Obviously, the, the plans aren't in place. But how would you envision a, a national pilot program working? Well, we're, we're hoping, and actually one of the pilots, uh, the, uh, the former I-95 pilot, the Eastern Transportation Coalition, did incorporate trucks in their, uh, in their pilot. And, and I think what we learned from that is, as Trish Hendren says, trucks are not big cars, that they are a very unique uh, subset, and we have to be very, very careful of it. But as we look at the national pilot, um, as you saw, the legislation requires that there be volunteers from all 50 states. It does not say they have to be, but it's open to all 50 states, and we hope we can have people from all 50 states. But the, it is not real specific on the classification of vehicle. And so we're hoping we might be able to get a variety of vehicles to uh, volunteer for this, because the more we learn in this pilot, uh, the better it will be. Now, as I mentioned this morning, uh, it will take about a year to ramp up, and the legislation requires a national advisory panel, and that will be inclusive of people that represent many different viewpoints, advising the Secretary of Transportation on how to implement this. And then probably about 18 months, I would guess, of the of the pilot actually happening. And then, um, you know, writing the report and getting back to Congress. But they've been pretty clear to us. They want to have recommendations at the end of this five-year period of moving this nation to a, to a national system. So we really have a, um, a huge road ahead of us, so to speak, on, on trying to be able to get this um, in place. Because as I mentioned this morning, the United States will be the first country in the, in the world that's doing a full light vehicle national pilot. And so we have a lot of people looking at us because everybody's kind of facing the same uh, situation. You also said something in your presentation that so far, as far as you can tell, this has one of these very rare things. It has some bipartisanship support, that this is not necessarily something that comes down as pro-Republican, pro-Democrat, pro-left, pro-right. Um, where are you seeing the support coming? I mean, I know where you're seeing the support coming from. It's coming from both places. But, you know, what are the two sides of the aisle telling you about this? Well, I, I think, it, it, you know, as we got ready to start on this transportation bill, uh, I don't know what a year or two years ago. Um, I know both the, the chair and the ranking member of the House Transportation uh, Infrastructure Committee said this is one of the very few things they completely agreed on. And so what I'm what I believe will happen is even if there's a change in, um, you know, the houses, the leadership of the houses, uh, that uh, uh, we will continue to have strong support for this simply because uh, people that are on the transportation committees all know 
this serious, serious situation we are in on finances in this nation for transportation. And I think that um, it really has been surprising to me uh, how, how bipartisan this has been. As I mentioned this morning, the Senate EPW committee um, did a full hearing on this. Uh, and and I was really, uh, you know, I was really impressed with the knowledge and basis of all the members of that uh, committee on the issue, how serious it is and why we need to move forward. And that's both Republicans and Democrats. Uh, and it came uh, out of that committee. The bill did uh, with a unanimous vote. Because right now you've got a situation where certainly the Republicans have made it clear they're not going to raise the federal gasoline tax. Right. Uh, there was some discussion about it in the Biden administration, but President Biden has said he doesn't want to raise taxes on any Americans who make under $400,000. And certainly a, a gas tax increase would do that. This kind of takes that issue off the table. They don't have to worry about it anymore. And the, uh, you know, that whatever the per mile rate is going to come to is going to seem so tiny um, compared. So, you know, I don't want to ask you too many specifics because it is early. It's a pilot. But yeah. I mean, do you have any guess about what a rate might turn out to be? Or is it is, is that the kind of thing you need a pilot to, to figure out? Well, if I remember correctly, Washington State, which has done some of the most advanced work on some of the pilots, if I'm just taking this from the top of my head, I think they use 2.6 cents or something like that. Which, uh, yeah, I, I mean, per mile. And it, it was somewhere in that range or maybe it, yeah, I, I shouldn't even say that because uh, um, I, I'm, I'm a little bit uh, distant from that study right now. But I do know that, uh, as I mentioned this morning, that when we looked at the state of Wisconsin and what pickup trucks there are currently paying, the average best-selling pickup uh, in the state of Wisconsin uh, with the mileage they're getting now <clears throat> and the, um, uh, you know, the uh, rates for the state tax and the federal tax, they are currently paying 2.6 cents per mile. So I think that uh, in, in, in anything, gasoline, basically in gasoline taxes, in gasoline, when they right. get in their pickup and they drive, you know, what, what they're paying with the gas taxes is uh, the same as 2.6 cents per mile. And I think that um, there has been there's been a lot of uh, interest on what the rates would be. But that's why we have to test what we really have to see in this nation uh, what we need and what will work. I mean, do we uh, test at different levels? Do we test rural? Do we test urban? Um, or do we just test amongst uh, you know, a group of states? But I'm a very strong believer we need to test from coast to coast. We can't do up and down one coast because the East Coast and the West Coast of this country are very different and they have very different driving habits. So I think that we, we really are looking to be able to get as comprehensive a view as we can uh, uh, for this. But I, you know, I'm not even going to venture a guess, but I'm just saying that right now, that is what a, um, that is what a pickup getting average gas in the state of Wisconsin is paying. And I would bet we're going to be somewhere in that range for a, um, um, you know, for a fee. So, uh, what I wanted to ask, um, uh, I know, oh, I, I know my next question. You're, you're, you, you talked uh, in your presentation about the equipment that is going to be used to record this. And again, we don't know what the equipment's going to be. Let's make right. that clear. But key to this is going to be the auto companies. And um, are the auto companies a member of your alliance? And if not, what are their views on this? I think you also made an interesting point that at a certain level, 
maybe California goes ahead. They require cars to have some kind of equipment that registered miles beyond the odometer. And then just because of the, you know, the 800 pound gorilla in the room, the auto companies then put that equipment on every car because they don't want to make two cars. Right, you know, right, if right. California cars with the equipment, 49 states without it. And not just 49 states, but you're talking about Canada as well. So um, anyway, um, where, do you, where do you see the auto companies on this? Uh, well, you know, like I said, we certainly are seeing a lot more interest. And as you certainly know, I mean, the auto companies are saying they're going all electric. So uh, they're really seeing uh, the need to be able to do this, too. And as I mentioned this morning that, you know, 13 percent of all the registered vehicles in the United States are in California. And California is looking at this seriously. They haven't put anything in place yet. But um if something would happen in California, uh, you know, I'm sure the auto companies would like to be able to, you know, just have a in-vehicle system that they could use for this. But I would say that that's really a, um, that's something that in the next several years, we really have to help uh, work on between, uh, between the auto companies. Uh, at our uh, conferences, we've had Toyota, we've had Ford. Uh, we've had the Auto Alliance, if I remember correctly, uh, but we were given no specifics. We were told that it's something they're looking at, it's something being considered, uh, but we're hearing a lot more interest from a lot of different areas of the auto industry right now, uh, simply because I believe that they are starting to realize that this really may become a reality in the United States. Is the thing that scares you most selling it to the general public? I mean, you've talked about selling it to private industry, selling it on Capitol Hill and in the state houses. You know, it's a pretty radical change. I mean, the point you made about it's 2.6 cents either way, mm-hmm. um, you know, that, that, that rings pretty true. But that can be a tough argument to make. Is, is that your biggest concern? I, it, it actually, <clears throat> what I have learned in the 10 years of doing this, and, and most of my work's been on Capitol Hill with this, uh, there's really been a huge change of opinion. Now, I'm not saying that's in the nation. Uh, you know, when you go out and speak to people uh, throughout the nation, not ur- urban, rural, whatever, they have many concerns and privacy is right up at the top. That is their absolute biggest com- concern. And then secondly, I think they are concerned about how, um, you know, how they would implement something like this. Uh, so I think we have a lot of work to do uh, on education of people. And that is, you know, it's not going to be this huge uh, financial change for them. Actually, for some people, they'll pay less, I think. But but the problem is, is what I'm most concerned about is that we don't do this so fast that we have huge problems with it, that we really need to take our time, listen to a lot of people and test what we need to test. And, you know, this morning, um, I just learned about GAO. We had participated in the GAO study that I think had been a year ago, maybe a year and a half ago, but it was released yesterday. And I would say their biggest criticism, when I quickly looked over it, is that none of the pilots went for scalability. How would you take the pilot from you know, Utah and make it uh, much larger? How would you take the pilot from you know, um, uh, Minnesota and make it much larger? So I think that there is a lot of concern right now about how we would ramp up quickly on this without much data. Well, it's going to be interesting. It's it's going to be a massive change, and uh, your your organization is not doing this on any kind of profit motive. It's just that you all see uh, what needs to be done, and you've done a lot of great work. And I think uh, I think everybody should commend you for, for for the work that you do at the Alliance. 
Well, thanks very much. Uh, we're a small organization, but we have great members and um, they've really been, you know, we, we've marched up to Capitol Hill many times and our members have been right behind us and, and they've really been able to provide some great details for, uh, for members, which they really like to hear. I also want to point out, because give you an ability to uh, to push, I guess you have a consulting business on the side, Rodian Associates. Do you want to talk about uh, well, that? Well, I, I, I have to say that I used to do a little bit more consulting, uh, but now with Embofa, that's taking up a little bit more time. So I haven't done quite as much consulting as I have in the past, but uh, but I worked on Capitol Hill for many years, as I mentioned this morning. And, and that's part of the reason that we formed the Alliance, because for anybody that works in politics, the thing you want the most is for people to disagree on an issue that's really tough. Because <laughs> if you can say to people, when you know, once you agree, come back to us, um, you know, very few people can agree. And so that's the reason we formed Embuffa, so that we can have kind of an umbrella so that, you know, we can come up with, uh, you know, there's lots of different opinions within the organization of how this thing should be put together, too. But that when we actually go uh, to Capitol Hill or if we go to state houses, uh, that we can come with one idea and one purpose. And I think that that's part of the reason we've been successful in getting these pilots that um, they think that they actually can happen. We want to thank Bob Rohde. She is the executive director of the Mileage-Based User Fee Alliance for joining us here today on Drilling Deep Live, at least recorded live, from the Transportation Research Board meeting in Washington. Uh, I'm going to be getting back to that meeting a little later. I don't know if you're going back, uh, Barb, but it's uh, it is, it's still a great meeting, even in its, in its shrunken size. I, I completely agree. And I will tell you, I was surprised at 8 o'clock this morning uh, that we must have had at least 100 people in that room, uh, you know, listening to the legal issues of this. So, um, it, you know, it's very impressive. Yeah. So you have been listening to Drilling Deep. We are part of the Freightcast family of podcasts from Freightwaves. You can find us on all the major platforms for podcasts. I've been your host, John Kingston. Please join us again.